well, I know it can be maybe a little bit tough to believe it's already happening, but we are here in the middle of the fall, and it's fall break, and Thanksgiving and Christmas are right around the corner. These are supposed to be grand times, of course. There's heartwarming music that's playing in the background, and just to get out in front of this, no Christmas music till after Thanksgiving. Good. Get out in front. If you're tempted, I know Satan the tempter is out everywhere trying to pull you astray, and I'm just, as your pastor, lovingly reminding you the way of faith here, don't get sidetracked. We envision our kids happily getting along with their cousins. The, the fall air is crisp, but the warm apple cider in your mug is warming you up. The holiday decorations catch your eyes, and the smell of the upcoming feast is, well, it's nearly intoxicating. You can't wait to have it. This is how we, we dream it up. It's supposed to be the best of times. But the reality of these holiday gatherings rarely meets our grandiose dreams. And, you know, I don't mean to be Ebenezer Scrooge here and burst your bubble before it even gets started, but these things rarely meet expectations. I mean, last year, our family ended up in the emergency room. Maybe somebody in your family botched your favorite dessert and you're still working on forgiving them for it. Or maybe more significantly, there's a, there's a relational conflict that dominates the weekend, and it destroys the joy. Too often it seems, as Dickens famously said, that it was the best of times, but it was the worst of times as well. And Genesis 21 delivers a story to us that was both the best of times and the worst of times. If we scroll all the way back to Genesis 12, God promised two things, or many things to Abraham, but, but two really prominent aspects of that is child, a child and land. And it's now been decades, he's 100 years old, and the child finally arrives. It was the best of times, it's here, we've waited. But the narrative actually says very little about the child's birth. Of 34 verses, only seven, a mere 20% go to his birth. And more verses are given to this conflict with Ishmael, the unwanted, illegitimate son, and then more verses are given, as Pastor Casey would say, to Pastor Abimelech, or just Pastor Ab or King Abimelech. But th there's this major conflict between Abraham and, and this powerful king. It's as if Abraham is realizing it's not easy to live in the land of blessing even after the promised son arrives. It was supposed to be the best of times for him, but it kind of seems like the worst of times. And it seems to me that if we're honest with ourselves, we live a pretty high percentage of our life in this place. Maybe God has blessed you. He's given you a stable retirement, but your, your health fails before you're able to enjoy it. Or God has blessed you with wonderful friends and you're left longing for that one friend who could be a soulmate. Maybe you're married and you praise God for the gift of your spouse, but it sure feels like all you do is fight and arrange schedules and run a transportation service for your kids. Maybe that's not your marriage. Maybe you have a wonderful marriage. You praise God for it. But that battle with infertility makes it feel like the worst of times. Maybe God's given you the job you always wanted. You thought it would be amazing but the stress is eating you alive. And so what felt like was the best of times is 
the worst of times at the same time. And I just want you to know if that's the reality that you're experiencing, you're trying to figure that out, Genesis 21 is for you. And I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. And you may not have connected all those dots immediately when Eric was reading the passage a second ago and you're even asking a bit like, Justin, are you sure that's actually what Genesis 21 says? Is that all there? And I'm glad you asked that too because my goal this morning is just to open God's word and expose what's already there and show it to you and you can see it for yourself. That's, that's what we're after here. And so our, our approach this morning is I'll sort of sketch each of these three major sections of the passage, and then at the end, we'll tie it all together and hopefully see how all three connect and what it means for our lives today. That's our plan. So the first section here is the child of promise. It's the first seven verses, and and we, we sort of hinted at this already, but he's finally here, Isaac, right? It's been 25 years since Isaac was promised, since Abraham and Sarah picked up and left home. He's 100 years old now, and after that much waiting, I would expect a different kind of party for this child of promise. You'd think this would be like the main thing, and it would go on and on and on and be a major party, but the story doesn't really zoom in where we'd expect. There's there's not really much mention of Abraham and Sarah and the wrinkles that they must have had and just how all this works at such an age and I mean, not that we wanted a ton of detail on that side of things, but maybe a little bit of like what's going on here. There's no mention of the baby really, the cute cheeks, the crying upon delivery, one of those blue little sock hats you pull on. Like that's the stuff I feel like we'd see. But what does the passage emphasize? It zooms in multiple times on the promises of God being kept. Look back at verse one with me. I'll read verses one and two and hear this repetition of God did what he said he would do. Verse one, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him over and over. God did what he said he would do. This is the child promise. The seemingly impossible is becoming now suddenly possible. After 25 years of waiting and threats from all over the place, the child is here. Threats of his own life, of the sin that Abraham battled, threats from all sorts of family conflict, threats from the surrounding world and powerful kings and rulers, and it's here. And when you step back for a second and you consider the life of Abraham and Sarah, it's actually a little bit startling. If you just think through it at a high level, chapter 14, if we go back to, there's external threats from the kings around and there's this this battle and you remember God delivers Abraham through this improbable victory. It seemed like failure was sure to come. They were about to be wiped out. And then chapter 15, the threat is Abraham's foolishness. He says, oh, the child hasn't come. Here's this Eliezer of Damascus, I, I picked him up along the way. He, he, maybe he can be the, the, the heir. Like, Abraham, what are you doing? You're, you're foolish, trust God. And, and chapter 16, the threat is their impatience. Sarah says, let's, let's not wait any longer. Here's Hagar, my servant. Why don't you have a child with her? This is how it's gonna work. Chapter 17, God pauses him and says, no, I always keep my promises. I'm gonna do what I said. 
Just trust me, walk in obedience. Chapters 18 and 19, there's these threats from the family drama with Abraham and Lot. They are experiencing drunken orgies and every conceivable kind of sexual perversion. Threats from within their family there. Chapter 20, we saw last week, there's the threat of Abraham and Sarah's sin saying, hey, let's tell lies to protect and preserve ourselves. That's how we're going to get here. And in chapter 21, after all of these threats from their own lives, from their family, from the world around them, God says, I will graciously intervene and keep my promise, not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, not because I think you're that awesome, but because I graciously extend mercy. I never stop giving out grace to you. And I'm gonna do what I said I would do because I'm faithful to my own word. Pastor Ray Ortland has a little pithy phrase that I love about this. You see it on the screen. Here's what he said. The remedy for our deadness to God's grace is more grace. He just keeps pouring out grace upon grace upon grace. Romans 2, 4 says that God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. It's not him smacking us around, getting out a stick and prodding us. No, it's grace upon grace. I feel dead to God's grace. He keeps pouring out more grace, keeping his promises and pulling us forward. And here in Genesis 21, as the opening verses show us God keeping his promises, extending more grace when it's not deserved, we slowly see Abraham's heart being melted by grace and pulled into obedience. Look back at verses three and four to see this. We read, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Grace is melting Abraham's heart, moving it towards obedience. He names the child Isaac, just as God commanded him to in chapter 17. The name means laughter, pointing out, yes, Abraham, you laughed at me, and Sarah, you laughed at me, but I'll always keep my promises. He circumcises the boy on the eighth day, just as God commanded. He's beginning to trust and walk in obedience. And then the last three verses of this section point out that amid it all, God's faithfulness, his grace moving Abraham to obedience, God is the one who gets the glory. And there's a couple of phrases tossed into that, verses five, six, seven, that just highlight God is the one that gets the glory from all of this. Let's read those together, starting in verse five. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Just noting, like, there's no way that happens unless God is the one doing it. He gets the glory. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Wow. <laughs> God did incredible things in your life. It was impossible unless he intervened. Verse seven, and she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? God gets the glory. It's unexpected. It's improbable in every way. It seems impossible to the human eye, and yet God continues to keep his promises. It was the best of times. God delivered on what he said he would do, and Abraham responded in obedience, and God got all of the glory. Hooray, this is what we're looking for. And you know, before we, we move on to the next episode and see what's given to us here, I think we'd be wise to, to pause and consider what's just been given to us. 
to think, where are we like Abraham? Where are we like Sarah failing to believe the promises of God? Where 25 years of waiting is a longer timeline than what I'm willing to enter into. I know in my head that God's timing is perfect, but usually I'm not that okay with his timing when it comes down to it. I don't mind waiting 25 days if I have to, but I certainly don't want, don't want to wait 25 weeks or 25 months, much less 25 years. I wonder where we quietly in our spirit laugh at the promises of God. Of course, we, you don't say that. You're, you're, you're here on Sunday morning. You're not openly ridiculing them, but it seems impossible to you that you could actually forgive that person for what they did. That's just not on the table. It seems impossible to you that, that your friend or that your coworker who's far from Christ would actually be open to hearing the gospel. That just seems too far out there. It seems impossible. You, you laugh that you would have victory over sin in your life. That process of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus in that one area, yeah, that, that, that's too much, not gonna happen. Or, or, or maybe it's this. Maybe it's just that your life would be filled with joy. Seems too hard to believe. No, God's not gonna do that. I, I, I mean, I'm not really laughing at God, but inside I, I kinda am. Friends, this, this child of promise that comes Isaac, after 25 years, tells us that God always keeps his promises. No matter what our circumstances look like, whatever they show us, we must walk by faith. And it gives us a picture here of the best of times when one day the promises of God will be realized. That, that's the first sketch. The, the second sketch, now let's move on to, is this child of flesh. Pick up in verses 8 through 21, we're told about Ishmael son of Hagar. And if we just saw the best of times, we're quickly ushered into what we would call the worst of times. You see, because of Abraham and Sarah's sin, things are about to get a lot tougher than they needed to be. God keeps his promises, yes, but he doesn't remove all the consequences from their poor choices. It's not just sunshine and roses based on what they've done. You see, Ishmael is Abraham's illegitimate son, and he presents a contrast to Isaac, this child of promise, and a, a conflict almost immediately arises. So look back at verse 9 of Genesis 21 with me. We read, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. Now, on the surface, seeing Ishmael laughing doesn't sound like a terrible thing to us, but my Bible has a little footnote there, excuse me, that says, possibly in mockery. So this word laughing in the Hebrew, sometimes it just means laughing at a joke, something was funny, and other times it means a, a mocking, scornful sort of laugh. Which one does it mean here? Well, one of the best things to say is if you're not sure how to read your Bible, read your Bible. And as you keep reading it, the Bible explains the Bible and what is meant by that. If we were to jump over to the New Testament, Galatians chapter 4, we would see the Bible telling us what the Bible means. I believe it's up on the screen, Galatians 4 and verse 29. Here's what we read. 
Maybe not there. Okay. At that time, here's what it says. He who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. He persecuted him. So the word persecuted is explaining the laughing that occurred here in Genesis 21.9. It was the mockery kind. There was some kind of scorn, disdain. We, we don't know exactly what it meant, but it's reasonable to see this as a threat to Isaac. The child of promise has come, but the family of promise still has some major challenges. And despite the promised child coming, the life of faith for this family is still really difficult. And so it appears that Sarah sees Ishmael mocking, persecuting, scornfully laughing at Isaac, and she wants to protect Isaac. That's a good impulse. But she responds to the good impulse in a sinful way. Look at verse 10. So she, this being Sarah, said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Notice the way Sarah speaks. She refuses to use their names, just this slave woman and her son. It's a, it's a, it's a nasty, bitter kind of response that we see from her, and it the whole story kind of put together reminds us that sometimes God's people are the ones that get persecuted. Ishmael persecuting Isaac, certainly through church history, you can see times where God's people have been persecuted. But sadly, sometimes God's people are also the ones that do the persecuting. Here, Sarah wrongly persecuting Ishmael and Hagar and if you look back through church history, grievously, you'll see episodes like that by God's people as well. It reminds us that God's people are not defined by their utter lack of hypocrisy. Yes, we should not be hypocrites. We should confess our sins, turn, follow Jesus, grow in holiness. But the utter lack of hypocrisy is not ultimately what defines us, but Christians are defined by their declaration of, I need God's grace. The one leads to self-righteousness. Look how good I am. The other leads to living by Jesus' righteousness. I stand in him and him alone, perfectly complete. What that means for us, guys, is that the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. It means that God loves you right where you are today. Dirty as you may feel on the inside, or maybe you feel clean and that's the problem is your pride makes you think you're cleaner than you are. But the good news is not just that God loves you where you are, but that he loves you too much to leave you there. And by his grace, he'll melt your heart into obedience. Sarah responds sinfully to Ishmael, and Abraham is conflicted with how he ought to respond. He's not sure, what, what do I do? Is there clearly a wrong response from her, but I do want to protect the, the son Isaac. What do I do? And what God tells him, he says, hey, Abraham, it's okay to send Hagar away. He comes to, God comes to Abraham in a dream because I'm going to protect her. I'm going to provide for them, so it's, it's okay. And here again, we see Abraham growing in his trust of God. God, you said this, it seems like a bad idea to me, but I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna follow in obedience here. As Ishmael and Hagar go away, their life gets really difficult, they seem to be on the, the cusp of death, and we see this principle of common grace being, uh, being shown. 
where God cares for those people who are not his people. God's grace doesn't merely fall on the righteous. It doesn't merely fall on those who have faith. It's what we call common grace. It falls to to everyone. Matthew 5, we read, the rain falls on the just and on the unjust. Psalm 145 says that God opens his hand and gives food to all living things. And yet at the same time as the principle of common grace, where God protects and provides for all people, even those who have no faith or who may hate him, we also see the principle of election being laid side by side with it. That God chose Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, and he said, I will bring salvation to you and through you, not on the basis of your goodness, not on the basis of what I think you're going to do or respond in this situation, but merely because of my gracious choice of you. He opened Sarah's womb, gave life to her dead womb, spoke her son into existence, and speaks life and faith into spiritually dead hearts. Praise God. Romans chapter 4, where Paul is just expounding upon the gospel, comments on this passage of scripture, Genesis 21, and here's what Paul writes. He says, God gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. The principle of of common grace and of election being laid side by side here in Genesis 21. And the ensuing story with Hagar and Ishmael pictures the contrast between belief and unbelief. There's a a, sort of a a zoomed-in picture of this in Galatians 4 that we just preached on last October. So if you want to see how this story applies to your growth as a Christian, I would just push you back for a full sermon on that last October. I think it was October 24th of last year. We took the whole sermon to that. But Moses' point in Genesis 21 is a touch broader, and he's seeing a broader conflict, or contrast rather, between belief and unbelief. Ishmael showing the picture of unbelief, Isaac showing the picture of belief and faith. Ishmael, Hagar, they're sent into the wilderness, but without the covenant promises of God. They wander in the desert, but without the guarantee of the land to dwell in. Verse 17, God says that he heard the cry of the boy, but not the cry of Hagar, presumably picturing Hagar's unbelief. That whereas Ruth... If you recall the story of Ruth, was sent out from her homeland and she cries out to God in faith, it seems Hagar was sent out and gets bitter and angry at God. It's a picture of unbelief. To borrow from the coming chapters, you see this, this whole picture sort of coming together. Ishmael, Hagar, they're out, they think they're gonna die and you heard Eric read that uh, Hagar separates herself from Ishmael at this point of near death And next week, at Isaac's point of near death, Abraham draws near to him. Picture of faith relative to Hagar's unbelief and separating. Hagar, we're told, goes back to Egypt to find a spouse for Ishmael. It's again a picture of unbelief, going back to wicked Egypt. Whereas in Genesis 24, in a couple of weeks, we'll see Abraham being very clear, saying, go here, don't go there, response in faith. Whereas Hagar was a response of unbelief, I'm going to go do things my way. All of this to say that the family chaos in the family of promise does not lead us to this happily ever after we'd expect when Isaac, the child of promise, is born. It's not a pretty picture. And yet, despite all this unbelief, God still shows his common grace to Ishmael, makes him into a great nation. 
And I do think it's important at this point that we pause and we just note something here. And if you're not a Christian or you're not sure, maybe you're on the fence, you're thinking about these things, take note of this. Because in Ishmael, you see his father was Abraham, the great patriarch. There's a heritage of faith there. And Ishmael receives many blessings because of his heritage. In many ways, he would have looked like, on the outside, the true people of God, but he wasn't. He received God's common grace. Things, in many ways, were going okay for him. And yet, he wasn't part of the people of God. He wasn't a true Christian. What Romans 9 would say, picking up this story is that if you want the spiritual blessings of Isaac, the best blessings, you have to be born of the spirit. You need to be changed from the inside, not merely have the external appearances of what it means to be a Christian. You need to have a new heart given to you, not just to clean up your act and be a little bit more moral and feel a little bit worse about the bad things you did and a little more committed to the good things you want to do. That is to say that on the whole, the Bible is mostly about God and what he's done for you, not about you and what you're supposed to do for God. And maybe you've gotten used to reading it in such a way for a long time that you think, I go to the Bible as more or less a moral code, here's what I need to do for God, and it's about me, and the fact of the matter is the Bible is mostly about God and what he's done for you and how your response flows out of that. We summarize the Bible to say, or the message of the gospel, that God is holy, I am not, Jesus saves, Christ is my life. There's a a good God, he's holy, made the universe good and perfect, but we are not holy, we're not like him, we have flaws, we've turned and gone our own way. The Bible calls this sin, rebelling against God, and we've separated ourselves from him because of that. We couldn't do anything to save ourselves, but the good news is not, it is that the story doesn't end there. God is holy, we are not, but Jesus saves, came to this earth, lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death we should have died, to take our punishment, bring us back to God, and then Christ can become your life. So if you're here and you're you're saying, man, I kind of, I don't know if I'm a Christian or if I'm not, that's the message to believe, that God is holy, you are not, Jesus saves, and Christ must become your life. And you can have the external trappings of a Christian, and Christ has not become your life. You need a new heart from the inside out to be changed by his grace. I hope you'll respond to that message in faith, believing that his death on the cross paid for your sins and is bringing you into right relationship with him. Ask him to forgive you this morning. That wraps up the the second little sketch here of this child of the flesh. And it brings us to the third one, the covenant in the land. Verses 22 through 34. We meet King Abimelech, or as I said before, Pastor Casey loves to call him, King Abimelech. Give him a hard time about that next week, please. He'll thank you, I'm sure. Now, this King Abimelech, Abimelech is a title, might also be a name, but it's a title before it's a name. It's a bit like if you've heard of Egypt, there's the Pharaoh, like the Pharaoh's there. Well, it's it's a title for a king, Uh, and so we'll see these Abimelech sort of come and go, and it might be the same guy, might be a different one at various times. And what Abraham and Abimelech do is that they play a game of let's make a deal. They say, look, we're both powerful kings. Abimelech brings 
Fikol, the commander of the army, with them. They say, let's treat each other the right way. Let's make a treaty. And as soon as the treaty is made, there's an immediate conflict. It seems like maybe, again, entering into the best of times, treaty in the land, live peacefully. Worst of times, immediate conflict. We pick it up in verse 25. Let's, let's look at Genesis 21, 25 together. Here's what we read. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. Abimelech said, I do not know who's done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. The word reproved, right there at the beginning of verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech, the the language implies it's multiple confrontations. So maybe this Abimelech was kind of good at evasion. Have have you ever tried to tell someone about something, to confront them, and they they sort of evade, and they're sliding in and out, and you're like, I'm trying to tell you, this is a big deal. we got to deal with this. That's the idea we get here. And uh, and there's all sorts of possible right responses from Abimelech. What what are things he could have said? Well, he could have said, you know what, Abraham, I did authorize this well. I shouldn't have done it. Look, I screwed this thing up. I'm really sorry. I regret it. I'll make it right. That'd be a good response from him. He also could have said, hey, you know what? I didn't know about this thing, but thanks for bringing it to my attention. I'll take care of it. I'll get everybody in line. He doesn't say that either. His wrong response is, hey, I didn't know. You didn't tell me. And I haven't heard about it until today. Like begging the question, well, what do you think Abraham's doing right now except telling you about it, Abimelech? I hear him make these excuses, and he sounds like one of those college football coaches who's making excuses for his recruiting violations. Well, I didn't know what was going on over there. I mean, I know I micromanage every aspect of these kids' lives, how many calories a day they eat, when they're working out, when they're sleeping, when they're in class, when they're in film preparation, but I didn't know they were doing that thing on the side. And you didn't tell me about this, and I didn't know till today. It can't be my fault. This is not institutional control here, I promise. It's like saying, no, there's a problem here. And as the conflict arises, what does Abraham do? He's the one who actually makes a costly investment into creating a covenant to get back to peaceful living. He brings this offering, these seven ewe lambs, and it falls on Abraham to bring this here. And I think what Moses, in writing Genesis 21, is, is trying to draw out for us is to see the difficulty of living in a sinful, broken world. Yes, the promised child has come, and yes, there's challenges within our family, but within the external world as well, there are major challenges, and it's going to be costly for us to try and live by faith in this world. In the words of Hebrews 11, Abraham is forced to continue as a stranger and as an alien, seeing the promises of God from afar. You'd have to think maybe he thought the child is here, and now everything in the land will work out just as well. That's not the case. So so if we take those three sketches and we try to tie it all together a little bit, notice what's happening to Abraham and Sarah. The promised son has arrived, but they still have to deal with their scheming, with their sexual sin, with their lying, their anger, and their jealousy. They still have to deal with threats from powerful kings and from rulers around them. It was the best of times in the one hand, but the worst of times on the other hand. And this morning we started by talking about holidays that don't measure up to our expectations. We look forward to the holiday and it comes, but it's not exactly how we pictured it, is it? 
And sometimes in the, the 21st century, I think we get to some of the things we wanted, maybe even the things God has promised, but it's not exactly like we pictured it. We get a job, we get a spouse, we get kids, but something's still missing. Even the fulfillment of our dreams leaves us aching for more. You know, sometimes the most depressing thing is to get exactly what you wanted and realize it's not that great. Because as long as you don't have your dreams realized, you could still say, well, one day when I get that thing, it's all going to be better. But when the thing comes and it doesn't fix everything or almost anything, well, that creates a real problem. Does Genesis 21 give us anything for how we proceed in this situation? I think it does. And it's at the very end, and I want to draw your eyes to verse 33. Here's what it says. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Why does this tree matter? And why does it show up here? What it symbolizes in Abraham's life is that he is putting down deep roots in the promises of God. Yes, trees have deep roots, we know that, but it's immediately connected connected to this name of God, the everlasting God, El Olam. It's the first time in the whole Bible that God is called by this name, the one who will be forever, who will be the rock. Isaiah 26 calls him the eternal rock and uses this name for God. The call to worship this morning, I read from Psalm 90, saying, God, you have been our God through every generation. You are the eternal, the faithful one. Same name for God here. Maybe you think about it this way. If you want quick fruit in your landscaping, front of your house, obviously now is not the time to be planting things, but you know, next May, you want some quick fruit, what do you do? You plant a flower. You go buy one of those flats from Lowe's. Boom, immediately spruce it up. There's color there. This looks good. That actually requires almost no faith at all from you, though. It's the, it's the spiritual equivalent of pursuing whatever you can see in this life and that's where my joy is going to come from. Now, you want to exercise a little bit of fruit, or a little bit of faith, rather? Put some bulbs down in the fall. Maybe they'll bring you something in the spring. But those bulbs are not going to have, like, deep roots and meaningful shade for you to enjoy. Right? You want to have some deep roots? You want to have some serious shade? Plant a tree. It'll be slow. It'll take a long time but it will actually bear itself out and be well worth the investment. And what we see here in Abraham's life is he's having the faith to plant deep roots in the promises of God. It's what we're called to do as well. Knowing that I don't know exactly how this is gonna shake out, but my roots go deep in him and I know the shade will be expansive from him. And in chapter 21, there's this great news that arrives. The child is born but the very best news, it still is on the horizon. It hasn't arrived yet. There's this better son, Jesus, who would one day arrive. He's the one that will usher in the eternal best of times with no worst of times to come. He's the one our hearts are longing for, whether we realize it or not, whether we admit it or not. And the story here in Genesis 21 exists to show us that even in our best days, We'll be longing for something more because, friends, you were made for something more. 
I'm reminded of the, the North African theologian, Augustine, some 1,700 years ago. said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless, internal restlessness, until they find their rest in you. That's what Genesis 21 is telling us. So what does Abraham do? He concludes by calling on the everlasting God. And maybe you can relate to him a bit. He says, I've experienced the blessing, but now I'm stuck on my own failures. I find myself living in a, a crooked and a perverse generation. How do I proceed, Abraham asks, with eyes on El Olam, the everlasting God. So somebody this week might ask you, might see you say, hey, how are you feeling? What this means is you can actually be honest and say, well, I feel pretty crappy today. I'm not having a great day today. But you can say back, you know what? You shouldn't ask me how I'm feeling. You should ask me what I know. You should ask me what I know. And what I know is that whether my life looks like the best of times right now or it looks like the worst of times right now, there's an everlasting God that I can trust and that always keeps his promises and he's one day coming back to make all things new. And I know that regardless of how I feel today. That's what this tells us. You plant a tamarisk tree, a proverbial one in your life, and let those roots go deep down into the soil of your soul. And let them take time to grow. And let that tree come up with rings upon rings. It's getting wider and wider, and the leaves are spanning out, and there's shade from walking with God for years and for decades. And while you're waiting for it to grow, you're here in the gap. You fix your eyes on the better son, Jesus, and you know he's coming because he promised he wouldn't. He always keeps his promises. You fix your eyes on that risen king who brings life from the dead, who brought Isaac from Sarah's womb, though she was as good as dead, the scriptures say. And when this risen king comes, you know that he's bringing faith where it seems impossible, joy where it's inconceivable, and life where all you can see is death. You fix your eyes on him. Let the roots go deep. Keep walking in faith. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you always keep your promises. That you won't be thwarted by our sins. You won't be thwarted by family or relational conflicts. You won't be thwarted by the powers of this world. we thank you that with our deadness to your grace, you just respond with more grace, more kindness that leads us to repentance. And we ask, we ask this morning that you would give us faith to put down deep roots in you and in your promises. Help us by faith to look forward to the promises to come, knowing that here we are strangers and aliens in this world. Help us not to make this world our home, but to look forward to our true home. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.